Good morning from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 11th. In today's news, the Supreme Court sounds ready to uphold the Affordable Care Act. More than 1,400 Americans died yesterday of COVID and 62,000 are now hospitalized. And President Trump installs three more White House loyalists to top Pentagon jobs. But first, the big idea. President-elect Joe Biden said here yesterday that he is hoping to name several cabinet-level nominees before Thanksgiving, and he downplayed the difficulties that his team is having amid a lack of cooperation by Trump in the transfer of power. Biden said that Republican leaders who aren't acknowledging his victory are mildly intimidated by the sitting president, and he said Trump's refusal to concede the election is an embarrassment. Speaking to reporters here for the first time since declaring victory on Saturday night, Biden sought to show that he's hard at work. He spoke at the Queen Theater here in Wilmington, where his team made every effort to project power and authority. He stood before a large blue screen displaying the words, Office of the President-Elect. Those words were also mounted on his lectern. And his team has fashioned a custom quasi-presidential seal that shows an eagle over the number 46, a reference to the fact that he will be the 46th president come January 20th. Biden has now received more than 76.3 million votes, about 5 million more than Trump, and that margin is expected to widen as more ballots are counted in Democratic states, including California. Biden said yesterday that he has not yet spoken to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, though he noted the two have a longstanding relationship and experience making deals with one another. He said his hope is that they'll talk in the not-too-distant future because he wants to bounce ideas for potential nominees off of him to see who could get confirmed. Republicans control the Senate, and depending on the outcome of two runoff elections in Georgia come January 5th, will probably keep the majority in the chamber. Meanwhile, Biden's transition team released a list of 500 names of people who will form the backbone of his preparations to lead the federal government, with experts assigned to study every agency. The Biden teams won't make formal contact with Trump appointees and the career staff now in government because the outgoing administration has not yet released transition resources and allowed access. However, transition officials stressed that they're working through informal back channels to learn what's really going on inside, talking with think tanks, labor and nonprofit groups, and those who previously served at the agencies. Notably, President-elect Biden tapped proponents of stricter Wall Street rules for his agency review teams. Many of these new advisors are veterans of the Obama administration and have played vocal roles pushing for tougher oversight of financial services companies. They include Michael Barr, who was a senior Treasury official during the passage of the Dodd-Frank law in 2010, and Leandra English, whom Trump ousted from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau during a messy power struggle. Also, the first ever second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, announced that he will sever all ties with his law firm, DLA Piper, before the inauguration to avoid any conflicts of interest. What a contrast with the incumbent. Meanwhile, leaders from around the world continued to call Biden yesterday to congratulate him. He spoke with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and Irish Prime Minister Michael Martin. The calls were not coordinated with the U.S. State Department, as would be the typical practice, because a Trump appointee is refusing to sign a piece of paper acknowledging that the transition has begun. Privately, though, Trump advisors are acknowledging that Biden's certification is less a question of if than when. Amy Gardner, Tom Hamburger, John Swain, and Josh Dossi report that Vice President Pence gave a presentation to Republican senators on Capitol Hill yesterday about new litigation they're planning to file in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, and he implored them to stick with the president. But even some of the president's most publicly pugilistic aides and allies, including White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel, and Advisor Corey Lewandowski, are telling people privately that 
they don't expect the lawsuits to succeed. Trump met with advisors in the Oval Office on Tuesday afternoon to discuss whether there's a path forward. A person with direct knowledge of that discussion said the president decided to keep fighting, but understood that it's going to be difficult. This person said, quote, he's all over the place. It changes from hour to hour. The six states where Trump has threatened to file lawsuits continue their march toward declaring certified election results in the coming weeks. And last night, a Pennsylvania man recanted his allegations of ballot tampering. Richard Hopkins had claimed that a postmaster in Erie, Pennsylvania, instructed postal workers to backdate ballots mailed after Election Day. This was cited by Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator from South Carolina, in a letter to the Justice Department demanding a federal investigation. Attorney General William Barr, citing Graham's letter, subsequently authorized federal prosecutors to open probes into credible allegations of voting irregularities, a reversal of longstanding Justice Department policy that says those investigations should wait until after results are certified. But now Hopkins, who's 32, told investigators from the U.S. Postal Service's Office of Inspector General that the allegations were not true, that he made it up, and he signed a sworn affidavit recanting his claims. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Veterans Day. Number one, a majority of the Supreme Court appeared ready to uphold the Affordable Care Act's essential components in the face of the latest legal challenge to the health care law brought by Republican-led states and supported by the Trump administration. Two key members of the court, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, said plainly during two hours of teleconferenced oral arguments that Congress's decision in 2017 to zero out the penalty for not buying health insurance did not indicate a desire to kill the law in its entirety. With that, the latest effort to derail Obamacare seemed likely to meet the fate of past endeavors. Trump and Republicans have never summoned the votes to repeal the measure, even when in control of Congress and the White House, and the court's been unwilling to do the job for them. Roberts alluded to that fact during Tuesday's arguments. He said the same Congress that voted to get rid of the individual mandate voted not to repeal the law altogether, so clearly that was not their legislative intent. Roberts told Texas's Solicitor General, who was representing 18 GOP-controlled states, that Republicans seem to want the Supreme Court to do their dirty work for them, but he said that's not the court's job. Number two, in multiple states, hospital leaders are warning that the current spike of new COVID-19 cases is straining resources and sidelining the very doctors and nurses that they need to face growing numbers of sick people. Every metric is headed in an ominous direction. Yesterday, our country hit another one-day record, logging more than 135,000 new COVID cases, along with 1,403 additional deaths. At least five states, including Wisconsin and Missouri, set single-day highs for fatalities. At least five more, including Illinois and Pennsylvania, set single-day highs for new cases. Almost nowhere in the country are caseloads actually subsiding. Brady Dennis, Jacqueline Dupree, and Marisa Iadi report that 62,000 infected Americans are waking up in hospital beds this morning, a number the nation has not experienced since April. That's from COVID, not all hospitalizations. Michael Osterholm, the director of the University of Minnesota Center for Infectious Disease Research, says that these numbers should, quote, scare the hell out of you. He says this is like one huge coronavirus forest fire, and it's not going to spare much human wood out there unless we all change our behavior. Meanwhile, in Washington, Trump officials promised a fair distribution of the newly approved antibody cocktail from Eli Lilly. The federal government has more than 80,000 doses ready for allocation and distribution this week. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said in a briefing that the government negotiated a contract to buy 300,000 doses through December with an option to buy 650,000 more through June. But when you think about the fact that there's more than 100,000 new cases every day, that's really not that many. 
And because of the limited supply, the number of doses each state receives will be determined by the number of confirmed cases and hospitalizations in that state in a given week. For example, Vermont this week, which has among the fewest cases in the country, will receive 20 doses. Meanwhile, South Dakota, where the virus is spreading uncontrollably, will get 820. Each week's allocation will be made on a Wednesday. And Anthony Fauci guessed on CNN last night that the average American could have access to a coronavirus vaccine by the end of April, based on Pfizer's promising announcement this week. Sadly, though, the virus continues to take a toll in other ways while the vaccine continues to go through development. A brand new study out this morning from Oxford University found that one in five COVID patients, one in five, is diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder within 90 days of recovery. Anxiety, depression, and insomnia are the most common afflictions among recovered patients. Number three, Trump installed three more White House loyalists into top Pentagon jobs on Tuesday. This dramatic upheaval at the highest levels of the military continued a day after the president fired Mark Esper as defense secretary. Kosh Patel, a highly controversial former aide to Devin Nunes, got a senior role. So did Anthony Tata, whose nomination to be undersecretary of defense for policy crumbled over the summer amid bipartisan opposition in the Senate. But now Tata will perform the duties of the undersecretary for policy following the forced resignation of James Anderson, a former Marine intelligence officer. Also ousted at the Pentagon was Joseph Kernan, a retired three-star admiral and Navy SEAL officer who had served as undersecretary of defense for intelligence. He's going to be replaced by Ezra Cohen Watnick, who's just 34 and was a right-hand man at the White House to former national security advisor Michael Flynn. These decisions literally sweep away decades of experience out of the Pentagon as Trump seeks to purge people from government on his way out the door whom he views as insufficiently loyal to him personally. Dan Lamothe, Missy Ryan, Josh Dossie, and Paul Sonny report that the Defense Department, with its mandate to remain loyal to the Constitution and to keep uniformed personnel at a distance from partisan politics, will probably see more departures in the coming days. One senior administration official said late last night that Trump remains fixated on withdrawing troops from around the world before leaving office. This official said Trump sees the Pentagon as, quote, the leader of the resistance to his agenda. Ongoing debates have been raging inside the administration about the pace of troop withdrawals from several countries, namely Afghanistan, but also Somalia, Germany, South Korea, and elsewhere. These changes come after months of tension between not only the president and Esper, but also Esper and National Security Advisor Robert C. O'Brien. One senior White House official explained that the president never appreciated that the military isn't supposed to be political, and he still doesn't. This White House official says the president wants to politicize the military. Trump has long chafed at military leaders who have resisted his entreaties to make military weaponry available, including tanks and jets for holidays and displays in his honor. He also grew angry when Esper and General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, walked with him in Lafayette Square in June for that photo op in front of a church and then expressed regret about doing so a few days later, saying they shouldn't have participated. Officials close to Esper and Milley have said they were unaware that they were going to be used as props for Trump's photo op. But their public expression of regret caused Trump to seethe for days. Meanwhile, as a reminder that these machinations, that this palace intrigue, I guess you could call it, is having real consequences on the world stage. Over in Kabul, the Afghan government is praying and hoping that Biden will take a tougher stance on the Taliban than Trump has. Afghan officials tell Susanna George and Karen DeYoung that the stalled peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban could see changes with the new administration. Such moves would mark only modest shifts from the Trump's Afghanistan policy, but it could provide more leverage to the Afghan government 
who is negotiating in Doha. Peace talks have been stalled. Biden has said repeatedly that he plans to draw down U.S. troops to a relatively small number. He says several thousand. But he says he'll leave enough to ensure that neither al-Qaeda nor the Islamic State will be in a position to launch attacks on the United States from Afghanistan. That continued presence of a few thousand troops, including U.S. counterterrorism forces, could keep the Taliban in check and stop terrorists from thriving. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.